I want to invite you now, it's a little bit nostalgic, if you will, we're coming to the end of the book of Acts, so for the last time, I want you to take your Bibles, maybe not the last time ever, I hope, but as a part of this series, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, Acts 27, and we've been walking through this great book for several months now, and we're going to draw this thing to a close this morning, so find your place there in Acts 27, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, it's our gift to you, you're welcome to take that home with you. And you can find your place there uh, in Acts 27. I want to set up a little bit what we're going to talk about this morning. If you are a parent here, you know these words, you've experienced these words, you're pulling out, you're starting on the road trip with your family, and from the back seat you hear something like this as you begin your journey, are we there yet? To which you want to say to your son or daughter, son, we're not even out of the neighborhood yet. We're not even close. So no, we're not quite there yet. We come to Acts 27 and I have the feeling that Paul has kind of been thinking to himself, am I there yet? He, he's been waiting to get to Rome for now two and a half years. We've been walking through the last few chapters of the book of Acts and you know that he's been in prison there in Caesarea in Judea. He's been falsely accused by the Jews and he He's received a promise from Jesus. And earlier in the book of Acts, and we won't take time to turn there, but it's Acts 23. Jesus has told Paul, he said, look, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. He said, take courage, Paul, just as you've testified of me here in Jerusalem, I'm going to dispatch you to Rome. You're going to get to Rome. But now, two and a half, almost three years later in the history of the book of Acts, Paul's still waiting there in Caesarea. He's still in prison. He's faced the mock trials. He's been falsely accused and all that. So he's almost thinking, are we there yet? Am I ever going to get to Rome? Now, what I want you to see this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to put a map up for you in just a minute. And really, it's going to help us as we, as we walk through Acts 27. I want you to see this because this map is going to help you understand what we're getting ready to walk through. There's a lot of details that we're going to go through in chapter 27. But down here in the bottom uh, right-hand corner is... Judea, Jerusalem, that's where Paul's going to start. That's where as Acts 27 begins, that's where the boat that Paul's going to get on starts. So it starts there in Caesarea, and then it goes through the Mediterranean, then it ends up, he's going to end up way up here in Rome in the upper uh, left-hand corner. Jesus promised, you're going to Rome. Now, I want you to see this map because it's kind of like our life. <laughs> you say, okay, what do you mean by that, Pastor Mike? Well... How many times have we, we, we know the promise of God and we know what God is promising and we're, we're claiming the promise of God, but between the, the giving of God's promise and the fulfillment, man, there can be a lot of things that we didn't expect to happen. Paul has been promised that he's going to Rome and by the end of the chapter, by the end of the book of Acts, uh, He's there. He gets there. Spoiler alert. I hope you knew that anyway, but he gets there. But he had no idea of all that is coming his way from when he leaves Caesarea, Jerusalem, and by the time he gets to Rome. He has no idea of the hardships that are coming his way and the difficulties that are coming his way. And there are moments that all he has to hold on to is what Jesus has promised. Now, as we've been walking through our songs sit here, we've been walking through our time of singing, man, Josh has just done a great job to hold out this theme. But as we look at Acts 27, here's the big idea that is just overarching the whole chapter and what's going on in the life of Paul, and that's it. It's the providence of our God. 
And you say, Pastor Mike, that's, that's kind of a theological term maybe. I'm not even sure what that means. Let me just assure you, even if you don't know what the providence of God is, if you're sitting here this morning and you're breathing, you're thankful for the providence of God. You could define the providence of our God like this. I'll just give you a definition. We, we could define it like this. It is God's sustaining care and His sovereign directing of all things. Pastor Mike, you mean all things? It is His sovereign care, sustaining care, sovereign directing of all things in creation for his ultimate glory and the good of his people. Listen, there is not a second that you will exist on this planet that that is not a reality of who God is. His providence. You say, where did you get that from? It's from Genesis to Revelation, but I'll give it to you in Romans 8.28. We read it earlier. Paul writes and says, and we know. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to hope. We know, Paul says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, I don't know where you are in life, but I will guarantee you there will be moments that the only thing you have to hang on to are promises like Romans 8.28. Because as Paul learns from the time he leaves Caesarea to the time he gets to Rome, all things that come in our life are not good. All things are not good. Cancer is not good. Death of a spouse, death of a child is not good. Loss of a job is not good. Strained family, strained marriage, strained relationships, not good. Unexpected disaster that comes in your life, it's not, it's not good. But here is what you can cling to, and some of you need to cling to this morning. Paul's going to be clinging to as he's floating around in the Mediterranean. God causes all things to work together for good. For our good and for his glory. Now, as we open up in this chapter, if you haven't turned there already, we're, we're going to kick off in verse 1, and the boat is about to set sail. Paul has no idea what's ahead of him. He knows what Jesus has promised him. He has no idea, just like you and I, there's some things that are headed our way, maybe some things that have encountered your life in the past month, two months, two months ago. You had no idea what was going to be going on in your life today. So this story, this reality, this true story gives us so much truth to hang on to, practical truth in our lives. So let's begin, verse 1. I mean, I love this. It, one of my favorite movies, I'll just have to tell you, is uh, Gladiator. I, I love Gladiator. It's an action-packed movie, and some of you all, well, that's a rough movie. That's a man movie. I like it. And it's about this guy who, he's, he's a slave, and he ends up, he's on his journey back to Rome, and all he has to go through to get back to Rome to be a gladiator. Well, I'll tell you something. Acts 27 is better than the movie Gladiator. It is awesome, and it's full of action, so you hang on to your seat. You say, I wish we had popcorn. Well, I don't have popcorn, but anyway. Verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Now, Luke is the author. Luke is with Paul, and he's writing the book of Acts. So Luke is writing, and he says, he was with Paul. And he says, okay, we're going to set sail for Italy. They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners. Make note of that, because at the beginning of this story, Paul starts out as a 
prisoner. Paul doesn't get on the boat and everybody goes, oh, it's the apostle Paul. Paul gets on the boat as a prisoner, just like everybody else. He's in chains, probably in the bottom of the boat. So he gets on with the other prisoners. And he was given to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Julius is a very important figure in the story. He's the dude in charge. He's the centurion. He's headed back to Rome. All of the people on the boat are under his charge. Verse 2, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. A Macedonian of Thessalonica. Now, I'm not going to stop at every verse, but there's some good stuff here. Verse 2. Aristarchus is with Paul. Say, Pastor Mike, I have no idea who Aristarchus is. Well, if you remember, back early in the book of Acts, when Paul was in Ephesus, he met a friend and this brother in Christ named Aristarchus. Aristarchus travels with Paul from Ephesus to Judea. He's been with Paul and all that Paul experienced in Jerusalem. Then Paul goes to Caesarea and spends two and a half years in prison. Guess who's there with him? Aristarchus. And now Aristarchus says, I'm going to stick with Paul, my brother, my friend, and he's going to go with Paul on this voyage all the way back to Rome. Now here's the kicker in this. This ship that's going back to Rome is for those who are going to stand trial before Caesar and some Roman centurions. So historians say the only way Aristarchus would have been able to accompany Paul was to enroll himself as a slave. So Aristarchus of his own will says, listen, if I'm going to go with Paul, I'm going to have to place myself in chains just like Paul. In other words, Aristarchus lives out perfectly. Galatians 6, which says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Aristarchus is going to stick with his friend. Man, that's awesome. So here's a beautiful grace in the life of Paul from the beginning. All that he's going to experience and all he's going to come, he's got a friend. And his name is Aristarchus. He's got somebody else named Luke that's writing it. So these two men are with him. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. So they set sail. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. The first port they pull in, or maybe the second or third, we don't know exactly, they pull in this port and Julius the centurion says to Paul, you have a pass, you can go free for a few hours. What's the big deal about that? Well, Julius as the Roman centurion, if any of those prisoners do not... <laughs> Do not finish the journey under Julius's watch care. Julius doesn't just lose his job. He loses his head. So it's not a common practice that a centurion lets someone go free. The point is, in less than a week's time, the Apostle Paul has been able to build trust in the mind of this leader. Now, a couple subplots going on here. We see the providence of God throughout this story, but it is, un, it is unmistakable. You see the character of Paul begin to continue to come out in this story. Here you see a man who built trust. He was trustworthy. And Julius picks up on that from the beginning. Let's continue on. Verse 4. Or let's actually jump ahead to verse 9 for sake of time. So they stop at several ports, as you see on the map. Some time passes. Verse 9 picks up. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since the fast was already over, Paul begins to admonish them. 
The fast was the Jewish holiday of the Day of Atonement. Basically, that's in there to tell us this. We're moving into the month of October or or November. The significance of that is, if you're a sailor, I'm not. If you lived in this day, the last thing you wanted to do was to set sail on the Mediterranean in December, January, or February. November is right on the border. It's iffy, it's highly risky, and most sailors would say, no way am I getting on the Mediterranean. So Paul says, it's entering into that season where it's really tricky, verse 10. And Paul says to them, now remember, where's Paul? Probably bottom of the boat, probably chained up, he's a prisoner. But he speaks, he takes the initiative, and Paul says, men, I perceive that this voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss. Not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our very lives. Paul is saying, fellas, what you're doing is just not smart. Another thing you see come out in Paul here, Paul probably had somewhere, according to historians, 3,500 miles on a boat. He was all over the Mediterranean as we followed through the book of Acts. Paul is saying, listen, I know you men are in a hurry and I know you want to get there. It is not the wise thing to try to sail across the Mediterranean in November. You might think of the Apostle Paul who wants to get to Rome and his mind is set on getting to Rome to saying, well, let's just push off and trust God and let it work out as best it can. No, no, no. There is a difference that comes out in the life of the Apostle Paul. Watch this. Between what is true faith and what is foolish. Paul's practicing good judgment. He says, listen, it's just not wise, guys. Parents, everybody in the room knows we want our kids to get it and we want to get it. There is a massive difference between what is faithful and what is foolish. Amen, parents? Amen? Paul says, listen, this is just not wise. So continue on, verse 11. But the centurion, Julius, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship of what was being said by Paul. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you get this prisoner down at the bottom of the boat. Hey, guys, it's not a good idea. I think I'm probably going to listen to the captain, right? So they continue on. Verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose. So this south wind comes up and they think, I told you all, this is a good time. We're getting a gentle breeze. Let's Let's just sit sail. They weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. Now, again, I'm not a sailor. You can talk to Pastor Jeff or somebody about nautical terms and all that. But here's what I do know. In this day, if you're going to sail, there, was no, there were no compasses. They hadn't been invented yet. There were no iPhones with GPS and Google Maps on them. We know that. And the only way they had to navigate was they had to navigate close to the shore or close enough to be able to direct by the stars or direct close enough till they could see the shore. So they're close to the shore. It says they're navigating close inshore, verse 14. So they set out, verse 14, but before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uroquilo. Now, that may not be the way you pronounce it. It doesn't really matter. I looked it up on Google this week. It's still a real thing. Sailors in the Mediterranean today in the months of November and February fear this storm called a Uroquilo. It comes up out of nowhere. It's hurricane-type winds. So they've set out. Here they go. They're trying to circle around Crete. And all of a sudden, bam, out of nowhere, here comes this storm. They're out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Verse 15. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind. 
So remember, they're trying to go north to get to Rome. This storm is coming that direction and directly opposing them. So they're not able to go in the direction they want to go. It says, verse 15, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Now, I told you before, I'm not a sailor. That's probably not a good thing. In other words, we're saying, look, we... We can't, we can't go the direction we intend, so basically what we've got to do is we've just got to let the wind take over and take us where it will. So out in the Mediterranean, these sailors are basically drifting in open sea. It says, verse 15, when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind. Verse 16, let's skip ahead to verse 18. The next day... This has been going on for a day. They're in this violent storm. The next day we were being violently storm-tossed. That's probably another one of those under, understatements in Scripture. That's a strong phrase here. Violently storm-tossed. They began to jettison the cargo to lighten the ship so it could ride on top of the waves. Verse 20. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... What's the two things they have to navigate by? The heavenly bodies or the land? They got neither one of them. So they haven't seen the stars. They haven't seen the sun for days. And no small storm was assailing us. Stop right there for just a second. This is a bad situation. Listen, I've not been on a lot of boats. My wife and I took a cruise a few years ago on a, I don't know, Royal Caribbean or something. And I hated it. I was green the whole trip. I was introduced to my room, and they said, here's your nice little window. Really? That's all I've got to look out of for four days? And it just up on the waves, and I absolutely despised it. I couldn't wait to get off that boat. One time we were in Las Vegas when we lived there, and some friends next door wanted to take us out on their boat on Lake Mead. And it was a pretty sunny day, and I mean, it's always sunny in Vegas, but by the end of the day, we were on the other side of Lake Mead, and this storm out of nowhere comes in. And I literally remember sitting in the back of the boat, and it was this violent storm. And all I remember is seeing the top of the boat or the front of the boat like this boom on the waves, and another way to boom on the waves. And I'm saying, Lord, if you'll get me off this boat, I'll never get another boat again in my life. I don't have good boat memories. I don't know what your boat memories are, but I think it's maybe something like this. You got a lot of green-faced people on this boat wanting to get off or hoping God just kills them. Since neither, I want to read verse 20 again. Since neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, here's how bad it was. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now, I've never been in a situation like that on a boat. I mean, they, there's no sun, there's no stars, all they have is clouds. The storm is horrific. 276 people on a boat, about 273 of them are saying, it's over, we're never going to live through this. I want you to see, because author, the author Luke here is going to great extent, they have found themselves where everyone around them is in a sense of a hopeless situation. This situation appears absolutely hopeless. Question. Will God allow his people to walk through seemingly hopeless situations? Yeah. Will God take his people and plant them in situations where everyone around you considers it a hopeless situation and you are the lone voice of truth and hope? Absolutely. 
So here's Paul, middle of the ocean, before nobody would listen to him. And now you're going to see this prisoner become the only lone voice of hope on this boat. Verse 21. And when they had gone for a long time without food, two weeks, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, so this is awesome, now the guys who wouldn't even listen to Paul before, now Paul is the one who's taking courage and standing up in their midst. He says, men, I love this, (laughs) men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. I told you so. You hate people like that? Of course, Paul's standing up. He's the only one that said we should have stayed back. So he said, listen, I told you we shouldn't have done this. But it continues on, verse 22. Yet now, I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. And they're all going, really? It sure doesn't look like it. But then he says, but only of the ship. (laughs) Is that that any help? I mean, you're not going to die, but the boat's going to be destroyed out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Is that real encouragement? Well, it was. It says there'll be no loss of life. And in the middle of this situation, this is just so striking. You've got to see this. This man to whom no one listened to, this man who started out as a prisoner, is now the lone voice of hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. And by the way, let me just tell you something. That's your life. And I can't stress that enough. You don't realize God will take you and plant you, whether it's at your job site, whether it's at, at, where you go to school. He will, put, he will bring people into your life where their world seems absolutely hopeless. And listen, you as a child of God are the only one who might be around that has the voice of hope and the, and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. I can't stress that enough. So that's exactly where Paul was. So he says, men, take courage. How did he have the confidence to say that? Verse 23. Paul says, for this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Sometimes in desperate situations, we need to be reminded of what Jesus has already said to us. This angel reminds him of what God had already said to him. And he says, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. And Paul says to them, therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Paul says, listen, I'm not giving you pithy little statements, and I'm not going to say, well, it is what it is, and man, don't worry, be happy. He's not saying empty words. Paul is the lone voice of authority because Paul has met with God and heard from God. So I can't stress enough. As we go out and we go to make Jesus known, sometimes the mission field is right around you as people's lives are unraveling and they have no voice of hope in their life. You may be the lone voice of hope in their life. Will God strategically plant you and put you in those situations? Of course he will. Because he's that good. He's that sovereign. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food. It's just a beautiful picture. I I don't know if Paul spoke and just addressed all 275 people on the boat. Or it seems it says all night he was encouraging. Paul may have went person to person to person to person on the boat. You see another character trait of Paul coming out here. 
I'll just tell you, if I'm on this boat and, man, I'm trying to find something to throw up in and I'm only worrying about myself, that's not what you see in the Apostle Paul. Sometimes when our life, this is huge, sometimes when our life seems to be unraveling or we find ourselves in these situations, we want to become very focused on ourselves. Paul had every reason in the world to say, God, I've been in prison for two and a half years. I've been faithful for 30 years. You finally tell me I'm going to go to Rome. You get me on a boat, and now this. You never hear that from Paul. And if Paul did say it, Luke doesn't take the time to record it, but I don't think Paul said it. You know why? Because Paul had his eyes on something other than himself. You see that character trait come out in Paul. So until day... Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today's the 14th day that you've been constantly watching and going without food. They hadn't eaten for two weeks. The storm's been going on for two weeks. Verse 35, having said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it, and he began to eat. That is a beautiful picture. These men on this boat see something different in the life of Paul, and now they are recognizing from where the source of his strength comes. He praises his God in the midst of the storm. Beautiful. All of them were encouraged, and they also took some food. Paul leads by example. All of us in the ship, Luke writes, were 276 persons, 276 people on the boat. So this prisoner who started at the bottom of the boat is now used to encourage and give strength to 275 other people on the boat. Now, I didn't take time to dig into all this. What have these 275 people on the boat seen in the life of Paul? They've seen a man who is trustworthy. Julius trusted him. They've seen a man who takes initiative. Paul stood up and said, no, we shouldn't do that. And now Paul's standing up and saying, listen, guys, take some food to eat. you got to eat. We see a man who practices good judgment. We see a man who is steady in the storm. We see a man who holds out hope. We see a man who has genuine concern for other people and takes his eyes off himself. And we see a man who shows great faith in the God of heaven. Listen, watch this. None of those things may have been evident in the life of the Apostle Paul to those who are watching if there had not been a storm. Do you get that? You say, why would God allow me to go through this? Or why would God allow put this situation in my life? It may be that God wants to reveal to those who are around you your true character, and that is Christ in you, that may not be as obvious or as clear to see apart from the storm and the pain and the hurt in your life. Because storms don't necessarily produce character, but they sure reveal what's really there. Right? You say, well, Mike, that's just awesome, but I'm not Paul. I'm not Paul. But the same Spirit of God in Paul is the same Spirit of God alive in every believer. It may not be God's 
plan for you to be shipwrecked in the middle of the Mediterranean, but it is God's desire and yearning for you that you walk with him in faithfulness and worship him and know him. And then through the storms of life, he's able to press you and what comes out of you when he presses you is the character of Jesus Christ, not you. That's the way it works. So Paul here is living testimony of his Savior, Jesus. Verse 39, let me try to wrap up. So when day came, they did not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach. So the next morning comes, and finally after 14 days, they see some land off in a distance. And they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. Verse 41, but they struck a reef where the two seas meet. They ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So the boat stuck. The waves continued to pound on this boat. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners because now it looks absolutely hopeless. This is just protocol. If there's going to be a shipwreck and there's any chance the prisoners might get away, you kill the prisoners. So that none of them would swim away and escape. Verse 43, this is beautiful. But the centurion, Julius, who trusts Paul, says, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. In other words, the people are preserved on the ship because of the presence of a man of God. There may be people at your workplace and people at your school and people in your neighborhood who do not know the God of heaven and they have no idea that their life in some way is benefited simply because of your presence. That's the way it works. Because Jesus said you are salt and you are light and God's providence and God's good grace often comes through the lives of believers even into the lives of unbelievers and they don't even know who it's coming from and they don't know the source but that's God's goodness these men are kept alive on the boat because of Paul that's the way God works he says anybody that can jump in basically do it find a board or something verse 44 and the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship and so it happened God's providence that they all were brought safely to land, just like God had said, just like Paul had said. So you think, man, he makes it through this storm, and he's finally on land, so the boat's a wreck, the boat's a disaster, 276 people are alive, they show up on this island, you think, man, Paul's finally out of the storm. Hang on, verse 1 of chapter 28, just a few verses here. So it says, when they've been brought safely through the storm, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Malta's down at the boot of Italy, if you don't know where Malta is. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. This is a big crowd. 276 people off the boat, all the natives. There's a big crowd here. And Paul's been through boat wreck. Paul's been through shipwreck. Paul's been sick at sea for all these weeks. And it gets worse, verse 3. Parentheses, I believe every word of, of the Bible, but there are some things that I just have to scratch my head and say, God, why would you have to put that in there? Verse 3, when Paul was gathering a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper 
Now listen, the word viper is used here because viper means an extremely poisonous reptile, a snake. It's an extremely poisonous snake. This is no garter snake like he found in your backyard. This is a viper that comes out and says, came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Listen, I don't know what your tipping point is or your point where you just want to say, God, are you serious? I've had enough. If I've gone through all that Paul goes through and I'm finally on land and I pull my arm up and there's a snake hanging off my arm, that's about my limit. So here's Paul. He says this viper is hanging on his hand and all the natives are standing around. God, are you telling me you've got a purpose in a snake clinging to Paul's arm? Watch this. Verse 4. When the natives saw that the creature hanging, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. I mean, you know, it's not every day you see a guy with a viper hanging from his arm. He must be a murderer. Though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, verse 5, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting, I love this, that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. They're waiting for Paul just to kill over dead because of this snake bite. But after they had waited for a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they, they thought he was a criminal. And he says, now they changed their minds and they began to say that he was a god. <laughs> that just cracks me up. And you must be a bad dude. You got this snake hanging on you. And they wait and nothing happens. Hmm, well, you must be a god. We were wrong. Somehow, someway, God uses all of this in the plan of his providence for Paul's good and for his glory. Keep reading. We'll wrap it up. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place there were lands belonging to the leading man of the island who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. It happened that his father was lying in bed afflicted and with recurring fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him and after he had prayed he laid his hands on him and healed him. Paul encounters sickness. Paul encounters a snake. Paul encounters a storm. Paul encounters a shipwreck. Listen, I guarantee you, when he left Caesarea, headed to Rome, he had no idea of all that lay before him. But every single one of those things was used and worked together by God for Paul's good and for his glory. Verse 9, after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And it doesn't say it here, but I guarantee at that point, they're listening to whatever Paul has to say. And I guarantee you, those 275 people on the boat, after all that's happened, they're going to listen to anything Paul has to say to them. Verse 10, they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were all setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. God's providence goes ahead of them again. Verse 11, at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. That had wintered there at the island and then jump ahead to verse 14 just for sake of time. And thus we came to Rome. Just as Jesus had promised, Paul finally makes it to Rome. Now there's a ton here and I encourage you to read it on your own for sake of time. We're not going to try to go through all of it this morning. But I'm going to give you two quick takeaways from Acts 27 and then we're going to wrap up the book of Acts. Okay? For you and me, it is unmistakable to see some of these takeaways through the book of Acts. Number one is this. God is actively causing all things to work together for our good and his glory. 
Acts 27, 28, it is a shipwreck, it is a storm, it is sickness, it is snakebite, it is the poor decisions of people around him. On and on and on and on and on. But now you see at the end, God is absolutely working to bring all things together for good. All things are not good. But as a believer who trusts in the word of God and the faithfulness of our Lord, he, we can trust that some way, somehow, it may not be next week, it may not be next month, it may not be next year, but we will be able to look back. Paul in Rome now is able to look back and say, God was faithful and he caused all things to work together for good. God is faithfully doing that in your life and my life. But Paul does not take... I'm sorry, God does not take Paul to Rome so he can sit in the prison cell there and just sulk. God has greater purposes. It's not only for Paul's good. Don't be so short-sighted in the situations of your life to think, okay, God's worked this out for my good and that's it. That's not it. Yes, he works it out for Paul's good, but in the same way he's infinitely working it out for his own glory watch this verse 17 and three day after three days Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews Paul's in Rome now he's under house arrest he can have people into his house he's paying for his own rented quarters there so he brings he starts with the Jews as was his custom he brings them in 23 when they had set a day for Paul they came to him at his lodging in large numbers and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God Trying to persuade to them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken. Others would not believe. You say, what's the point of that? Paul understood a reality that, yes, God, you've led me through all of this. Yes, I've experienced your provision, but it's not only for my good. It is also for your glory. And God, you've brought me to Rome for a purpose. If God has delivered you, and yes, he's saved you and he's redeemed you. Maybe he's delivered you from cancer. Maybe he's delivered you from a, a job situation. Maybe he's delivered you, you. You fill in the blank. Yes, it's for your good. But even in that deliverance, he's not finished with you yet. Paul did not just sit in Rome. Verse 30. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. He was preaching the kingdom of God. He was teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. And in the sovereignty of God, the book of Acts comes to a close with that statement. It's several words in English. It's one word in the Greek, and it's the word boldness. The literal translation is boldness. And here's Paul who's been led through, who's experienced God's provision, who's experienced God's providence, and now God's planted him in the capital of the world, Rome, and Acts ends with the word. He is there to all that come to him, proclaiming Jesus with all boldness. Just like the book of Acts began. Here's your second takeaway and we'll be finished. God is actively 
causing all things to work together for your good, yes, but also providing opportunities for his people to boldly make him known. God worked for Paul's good and got him to Rome also so that Paul could make Jesus known. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, it's absolutely true in your life as well. In Paul's life for the next two and a half years, he serves faithfully there in Rome. He's still in stock. He's still incarcerated. He doesn't have his freedom. They've given him a measure of freedom. You can go to Philippians 1, and we won't take time to read it. He writes the letter to the church at Philippi from Rome. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Can you look at the storms and the situations of your life and see them from a missional perspective and say, I don't understand why it all happened, but God, you have used this for my good, and you've also used it to advance the name of Jesus. That's what Paul said. That's how the book of Acts comes to a close. So what what does it look like in your life today? Maybe, maybe you need to ask this, God, what are you sovereignly orchestrating in my life for my good, but also giving me a platform to make you known? God, show me that. Let me see that. God, don't let me get so focused on myself that I miss what you've given me. It may be look like in your life that over the next few weeks as a church, this is a, it's a big few weeks coming up for us. We're going into our I Will Make Known weekends. and I, I, I mean, We're challenged all the time as a church, but we're going to be challenged over the next couple weeks in maybe ways we haven't been. Of take that next step in making Jesus known. Maybe, maybe now you see the situations in your life as platforms like you've never seen them before. Maybe you're praying for lost people like you've never prayed before i got to share this text with you. My wife received this text this week, and I asked permission that I could share it. A young lady in our church who's been praying for her three names, except she didn't have three names. She's very honest to say I didn't have three names even to put on my list that I was praying for, but here's what God did. She says, just had to share with you, and I'm so excited. Asking you shall receive, she says. You all know I've been praying for a new friend to share the gospel with and to invest in. And I've been stuck in my safe Christian bubble. Today I officially joined a mom's club at the gymnastics tonight. And a mom from that group found me and she came to me and introduced herself. She's new to Johnson City and she is a Muslim. Please pray for this new friendship to blossom. Listen to this. I've been praying for her to come into my path. And now I know her name. It's awesome. Hey, that's what it looks like for you. Maybe as a result of being in this church and being challenged in your life group and realizing walking through the book of Acts, man, it's unmistakable that you are the missionaries God has called. God, God brings glory through his church, not merely because we gather, but when the people of God are empowered by the Spirit of God and sent and scattered to the ends of the earth. You. Maybe over the next couple of weeks, man, your heart breaks for cities like Portland and Denver where 95% of those cities are without Jesus. They are on a boat in a hopeless situation and they need somebody to be the voice of hope in their life. 
Maybe over the next couple of weeks, God puts on your heart the reality that, <laughs> listen to this, we're 2,000 years beyond the close of the book of Acts, so to speak. 2,000 years later, and today, 3 billion people on the planet do not know the name of Jesus. We shouldn't be okay with that. 1.3 billion people on the planet will be born, they will live their life, they will die and never meet a Christian, never read a Bible, never hear the name of Jesus. We shouldn't be okay with that. So when we leave here, and even beginning next week, is going to be Acts chapter 29. You say, Pastor Mike, I don't know what Bible you're reading from, but my Bible doesn't have an Acts 29. You and I are Acts 29. Still being written. I don't mean in the revelation sense, but I mean in the completion of the mission God's given us. It's not over. We're Acts 29. You're Acts 29. God has given us this great mission of making the Son of God, King Jesus, known. Would you bow your head with me here for just a minute? We're going to stand and sing. We're going to declare His faithfulness and His goodness. And then we're going to be sent out as the people of God with this gospel message that's good news. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for this church. I pray over the next three weeks, God, you'll challenge us like never before. God, I pray you'll call men and women to yourself. And Lord, I pray you will send men and women out from this place to where we live, to where we work, to where we play, to the unreached people groups of the earth that do not even know your name. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.